Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand that had an impact on you as a young kid? I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, uh, which is the birthplace of Nike. So that definitely is the brand that uh, kind of stuck with me from an early age. You know, Steve Prefontaine was a is a hero in Eugene, and the waffle iron was something that we could drive down the street and see. Um, so Nike, in a lot of ways, has formed a lot of the foundations of the way that I've thought about marketing through the years. One of the things that I really love is, and that I use all the time, is that concept of um, of talking from an athlete to an athlete and letting the rest of the world in on the conversation. To me, is really important in a reminder not to talk down to the audience that you're speaking to, to speak in terms that will let them know that you really inherently get the passion and activity that they're talking about and to not miss those nuanced points that will not pass the smell test with the insiders. And uh, that definitely informs the way I think about marketing on a pretty constant basis. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, But the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Corey Maynard, the chief marketing officer of Uni Pizza Ovens, the red-hot number one outdoor pizza oven brand in the world. And it's only nine years old. Uni was founded by a husband and wife team with its headquarters not in Italy, but in Scotland. Go figure. Sales this year, up 200% plus. Corey's career path reflects his passion for the outdoors. He has had CMO-type roles at Yeti Coolers, Gerber Outdoor Gear with its legendary knives, For Ocean, the social enterprise that pulls a pound of plastic from the ocean for every product sold, and Wild Sam Field Guides, a publisher of literary travel journals. Corey has a BA from the Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, and an MBA from the University of Oregon. He now lives in Austin, Texas with his wife and toddler daughter. This is my conversation with Corey Maynard. Corey, welcome to the CMO Podcast. This conversation has to start with Kit Kat bars. <laughs> I, I've heard through the grapevine that you smuggled out a whole backpack of Japanese Kit Kat bars out of Japan. Do I have that correct? Yeah, you've done some pretty good research there. <laughs> yeah, that's that might be correct. That might be correct. Why do you love Japanese Kit Kat bars? 
Well, uh, you know, there's, uh, it's, it's a product I've loved my whole life, but didn't know that the world of KitKat existed beyond the brown four tubes or whatever shape that is that we can get here in the U.S. And when I discovered that the world of KitKat was so much more, I realized that would be the perfect gift to bring to all of my friends back in the States. So uh, I had I had a full bag of Kit Kat bars when I came through uh, the customs in Japan. And I got a very strange look when my bag got searched. But I did confirm that it was nothing but Kit Kat bars in my backpack. <laughs> well, for our listeners who aren't aware, uh, Kit Kat bars are wildly different in Japan. They're all these incredibly exotic flavors and colors. And I, I do the same when I go to Japan. I bring a whole bunch in the back. My wife's a big Kit Kat fan, and these are a big hit. So I do the same thing. So <laughs> anyway, we had to start there. Perfect. Hey, uh, I assume you're a pizza lover as well as a Kit Kat lover. Did that predate joining Uni? Well, absolutely. And I think I'm in the majority on that one. I don't know a lot of people who don't love pizza. So uh yeah, I mean, I've loved pizza my whole life, uh, a lot, which uh, by some stats, it's the most popular food in the world. So uh, I have a lot of company in my love for pizza. So what is your go-to pizza when you're out there on a Friday or Saturday night or Sunday afternoon in your backyard? What's your favorite to make? Well... <laughs> With the uni, uh, it operates at super high temps. So, you know, it can get up to a thousand degrees Fahrenheit in 15 minutes. And that's the perfect temperature to make a Neapolitan style pizza. And the classic Neapolitan style pizza is a margarita pizza. So you got some fresh mozzarella, you've got some basil, some sauce, and, and you're good. Uh, so that's, that's almost always the first pizza I'll make when I'm doing a batch is a margarita. I skipped lunch today and it's about three o'clock where I am recording today. I'm getting very hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have pizza tonight. Hey, before we get too far into this, the name Uni, tell us about that. Yeah, so we were founded by a Finnish gentleman by the name of Christian Tapaninaho, uh, who was living in the UK at the time, was frustrated by his home oven's inability to reproduce the quality of pizza that he really loved. And so he started working with a local metal shop worker to create some ba a backyard version of the pizza ovens that he'd experienced in Italy uh, without having to spend, you know, multiple thousands of dollars and have a mason come to your house and, and make a brick oven uh, pizza in the backyard. And when it came time to launch his concept on Kickstarter, uh, and he did the search for his name, uh, the first place he went is to the Finnish language, uh, in which the word uni, U-U-N-I, is a direct translation for oven. And so when the Kickstarter first went live, U-U-N-I, uh, uni, was the name, and in time, uh, through some mispronunciation and a few other reasons, they decided that OONI was going to give them a much better chance of people getting it phonetically correct. So the brand transitioned to OONI and we haven't looked back. I want to talk a little bit more about your career and the brands you've worked on. And I would have to say, you probably embody the, the explorer archetype. 
about as well as anyone I have met. If I can read you from the things you've worked on so far in your life, would you agree that the explorer archetype is the one for you? I've always thought of it as if you ask somebody what they're passionate about, or you just ask somebody to describe themselves, and if in the first two or three things they say about themselves, that passion or pursuit or activity is mentioned, like that's a sign of somebody who's a true believer in that activity. And and for whatever reason, um, it, adventure type activities, I think, attract that kind of personality. And I've always really enjoyed working on brands like that. And it's definitely something that I can relate to personally. So Yeti, Four Ocean, Gerber Gear, Wildsome, Uni, Outdoor Adventure for sure, Purpose for sure. Any other red threads in this career, Corey, to date? Is it people you followed, leaders, or is it just this brands that are resonant, brands that are part of culture, brands that are, that are about the outdoors and adventure? I mean, is that what you look for as you contemplate your next move or the next job? Yeah, well, certainly earlier in my career, my moves weren't as, as calculated as that. Mm -hmm. I'd say as I've developed in my career, um, I've found myself drawn towards founder-led brands that have sparked a level of passion with an audience, but haven't fully realized that passion. And, um, and there's something about being able to connect with the people that had the or original idea for the business and were able to get it off the ground in the first place, uh, and then try to channel that passion they had for the reason they, they started the company into a bigger idea that can appeal to a lot more people. And so those are the, those are the kinds of businesses that I've really loved and been drawn to. And the, certainly the reason I'm at Uni now. What's the part of your career you're most proud of? Is it a person, a brand, a time, a relationship? Um, you know, there's certainly um, the public-facing victories, like a brand grows to be a certain size and you, you know, beat growth targets. And those are the common everyday metrics. Um, the things that I'm always most proud of are always the teams that I've been able to build and the people that I've helped um, kind of come in at different stages of their career and either um, develop the tools to get to the next place or to kind of launch them on a longer career or kind of get past something that was a roadblock for them. In terms of the things I'm proudest of, it's almost always there, that list would mostly be the people that I've helped develop and have gone on to have really great careers and I've kept great relationships with. Um, but there's certainly business milestones that have been really fun too. What's been the most challenging chapter of this career to date? Yeah, the most challenging chapter was probably after I left Yeti, where we had such an incredible growth ride that we had. So the brand was founded as a hunting and fishing brand that uh, was mostly focused on the South. And in a lot of ways, the brand developed and evolved based on things that I was personally very passionate about and saw that connection. And so a lot of the choices that we made as a brand were 
things that I personally believed in to the point that, um, you know, after four years and the amount of growth that we had, it was difficult for me to separate myself from the brand. And so leaving Yeti and thinking about what my identity was outside of that was a challenging time. And I tried on a bunch of different roles uh, before I could in different kinds of consulting projects, which, you know, I'd recommend to anybody if they're at a point in their career where they're, they're trying to figure out what that next move is, getting to try out relationships with different brands helps you get clarity on what you're, what you personally believe in and are passionate about. So it's that period of decoupling myself from the passion of the Yeti brand, I think was probably the most challenging. Did you, I mean, it must have been tough to leave Yeti. Did you do it because you had sort of felt you've had your impact, it's run its course, you wanted something else in your life? Well, this was a situation where um, it was a founder-driven company and we got to a point where the founder decided, it was clear that an IPO was in our future. Our founder didn't want to be the CEO of a publicly traded corporation. So the PE firm that was, majority owners of the business brought in a new CEO and most of the original executive team was replaced in time. Understandably so, you need a different team for different phases of a, of sure. a brand's growth. Uh, but I was on the outside looking in through that transition. So you left Yeti and you're, you know, I look at your career and you're sort of now in your fourth CMO type role. A couple of them are temporary as a consultant, which you just talked about, and you recommend that, how is being a temporary CMO different from a full-time one? Or is it? It's not really different. Well, I can't speak for anybody's experience beyond my own. For me, in the day-to-day, it's not really different. I sort of have a method acting approach to marketing in that I have to live the brand fully myself and fully immerse myself in it. So if that in the times when I was working for, you know, Wild Sam Field Guides or mm-hmm. Four Ocean, I was a true believer in the brand and the business and I couldn't have done my job effectively if if not. The difference is just the time horizon that you're operating on and you know you have a little bit more pressure to deliver within a limited time scope and that you need to make sure the business is in good shape to hand to the next person down the line. But the role itself isn't fundamentally any different. What have you learned about being an effective CMO from these four stints? I mean, how do you structure your time? What do you focus on? What do you value? What are, your, what are your, typically your priorities when you're a CMO? Yeah, there's a lot to that. Uh, and <laughs> there's a bunch of different directions you could go. It absolutely starts with the team and making sure that in the critical roles that are most important to drive the business, that you've got people in place that you can delegate large swaths of responsibility to so it can free you up to focus on the areas that need more attention. And so getting a couple of those key players in place. And I've also developed through all the years a network of consultants and advisors and people that I've met along the way who I think are really incredible at one particular field. 
and bringing in those advisors to help coach up and train people on the teams and help them learn what great looks like has been definitely a set of tools that I've kept in my toolbox. So at each of these brands, I've got maybe a half dozen people that I would, uh, you know, mix and match who's right for which brand, but that I call on regularly. So when I know a brand needs some help on email marketing, I know who I'm going to call. So having that slate of people in the, in your back pocket is pretty important. What's your advice, Corey, to those who want to build that slate, who are maybe a bit more junior in their career than you? What have been your tips in having this set of advisors who are there to help you when you walk into a new team or a new challenge or a new brand? I think building a network of people who you have met along the way, who you respect is pretty critical. What I've found is... Almost anybody is willing to have a 30-minute conversation to chat if asked about the right way and if you're flexible about when you want to meet with them. And it's not like we're celebrities who have millions of people knocking on our doors all the time. And don't be afraid to reach out and say, hey, I've got a question about this thing that I'm struggling with, and I think you, you guys do a great job at this. Do you have 30 minutes to talk? I don't think I've ever turned anybody down for a request like that, especially if it's not coming on the heels of somebody trying to sell something. If it's an honest question about, um, you know, a question they have about marketing, I'm always willing to take that call. And I know a lot of other marketers are as well. So I would encourage anybody to try to build a network of those relationships. And then eventually you find people who, become a part of that team who you keep calling again and again. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Let's talk a bit more about Uni and you and your role. You've been there about a year full-time. I think September 2020, you joined full-time. You were a consultant before that. You joined in the, the heat of COVID. Talk about what compelled you to join Uni and make this the next brand you want to be a part of and how you discovered it, how you made that decision. Yeah, I've always been very open to have a conversation with whomever reached out, reaches out and wants to talk about marketing. and generally for you know a first conversation i have with somebody i don't start a meter running on a consulting fee from the beginning i'm happy to just chat and meet with people and let's get an understanding of if uh if there's some kind of a fit or if my skills are are what that company is looking for so this was one of those examples of so uni had decided that they wanted to plant their U.S. flag in Austin, which is where I live. 
and in their trying to make friends with companies and brands in the Austin area, they reached out to Yeti, who's really the um, the biggest brand that's in this category in this area. And they asked a couple people on the team if they could talk to somebody in marketing who was a part of that growth story, and they pointed the Uni team towards me. And so I took the call as uh, having never heard of the brand before. Actually, that's not true. I heard of the brand the week before from a chef friend who had had a backyard pizza party that my wife went to, and she came back raving about the pizza. And that, but I, the first time I heard about it was a week before I met them. And then these guys reached out. And so it all kind of felt a little fortuitous. And then I met the team and, you know, immediately liked them because they're very likable people. Um, and, uh, which is a big part of the culture, to be honest, is just how kind they are. And, they asked me after that first conversation if I could take a look at some of the marketing activities that they were doing and maybe come back with a short presentation on any suggestions that I had. So I agreed to take on a few week project for them, came back with some insights after a few weeks, you know, as much as anybody can really figure out about a brand in basically no time at all. They must have liked enough of what they saw from that, that they wanted that to keep going. And if you're in the position in your career where you can uh, be in a consulting role and you're you're not sure if you're ready for the next full-time job yet, um, and you kind of string together consulting projects or working for different brands... I would strongly advise that to mid-career marketing people as a way to try out the fit between how you work with the founders and how you work with the executive team and how you work with the rest of the team. And so I had the luxury of months of working very closely with the team before we both agreed like, hey, this seems to be working pretty well. Let's turn this into a, let's turn this into a full-time job. I love this idea about, you know, it's kind of like a mid-career internship, right? It's a paid internship. That's right. So you get to check each other out. It's kind of funny why we don't, we do that a lot with new hires. Why don't we do it with mid-career? I've recommended it to a number of people, especially when they come out of a job and they're just not exactly sure what they want their next thing to be. And, um, you know, everybody feels different amounts of financial pressure and social pressure to jump into whatever that next position is, or to at least have, you know, people who are in senior leadership roles in any field are pretty motivated individuals, you know, driven to be successful. And so being able to take a little bit of time where you're not exactly sure what the next step is can be a scary thing. But I would strongly recommend uh, spending some time trying out a few different businesses in this consulting style. Even if you don't end up working for one of those businesses, you'll learn a lot about yourself and what's important to you when you immerse yourself into different corporate cultures and leaders and teams and brands. And so I would recommend it to anybody. 
Most of our listeners would love to have the growth rate you have on Uni right now. And it's big numbers. You, you've grown through the pandemic. What have you learned about growing this brand in the midst of very uncertain times? It's a good question. And in full candor, when I first started consulting with Uni, the first question in my mind is, is the pandemic a spike or an accelerant? And every business who sells anything related to the backyard or the back country or fitness or a few other fields has had the year of their of their lives this last year, uh, at least on the business side, probably not on the personal side. We've all had a pretty terrible year on the personal <laughs> side, but yeah. the businesses have done really well. And, um, and so that was one of the first checks that I had was with myself was, is this business built to last or is it, is it on the receiving end of checking a whole lot of boxes during the pandemic? You know, it's the backyard. It's, it's people getting back to bake, baking and cooking and things like that. And pizza is sort of the ultimate comfort food, which I think we all sought during the pandemic, you know, foods that made us feel good. So it was definitely a beneficiary of the massive social trend. The thing that makes Uni different from a lot of the other brands that I think may be looking at more of a spike situation is that they created a product category that most people still don't know exists at all of the backyard pizza oven that you can buy for $300 and you don't have to install a giant piece of masonry in your backyard. And, um, and so any kind of, of growth that this company saw had the real opportunity to have a mul multiplier effect as, as we come out of the pandemic and everybody is invested in their backyard and um, are set up to host a pizza party with their friends. And it's an absolute conversation piece in any kind of a group gathering. So it still has that opportunity for um, that second word of mouth hit from all the people that were invested in it. And because our brand awareness is still so low and the category awareness is still low, there's so much growth ahead for the business that I, I settled pretty clearly on. It was an accelerant for the brand rather than a spike. And I know your original question was managing growth during a pandemic. And the business side of managing through the growth wasn't massively remarkable from my experience at Yeti of you're building a team, your supply chain is constrained, you're, um, you have to build enough flexibility that you can change the org chart on a, on a pretty regular basis um, as needed as the, the needs of the business scale. The biggest fundamental challenge of the pandemic from a leadership perspective is the fact that a year into working with this business, I've never met my coworkers in person. And I've never personally been to Scotland. And I met this team over Zoom. And I feel like they're very dear friends who I know more about their lives and they know more about mine than 
almost anybody else that I know right now, but we've literally never shaken hands or hugged or had a beer in person. And so being able to build trust and relationships and, and a team and keep everybody focused in the same direction in a time where we're a hundred percent remote and as a business like ours, we're remote with a, with a big R, meaning we're spread out across time zones and continents. And I think that's been a challenge. And I also think it's in some ways made my having being a CMO for a team that's mostly based in the UK, it's actually made my life easier that they're all remote because I'm on the same playing field as everybody else is there, that we're all, we're all spending time over Zoom. We're all trying to do, to keep our personal relationships going via um, digital communication. And that part of it's been easier than I thought it would be. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Is there anything else about your Yeti experience that has made you a fast start CMO at this fast growth brand? I, I imagine there are. Yes. <laughs> yes is the, the short answer. Um, my first time through, at Yeti, it felt like our hair was on fire the whole time. And we were growing at, you know, 200, 300% a year. And there was always these questions of when are we going to hit the ceiling? And can this, can this stay like this forever? And how do we effectively plan a business in this kind of a growth environment where um, the numbers we're putting out each year seem absurd? relative to what we did the previous year. So there's some there's some basics of what I learned at Yeti, but the biggest thing is to just be comfortable with that level of madness and that level of growth and to know that it is possible to sustain that and to be really thoughtful about when you pull which lever in building the brand. And so there's sort of an order of operations that you have to go through when you're thinking through having a brand in a high growth situation, some of which could be solving the biggest pain points that the brand is facing today, some of which is flipping the switch for things that you know are going to be fast growth drivers early, which buys you some time and space to be able to make some of the longer term brand investments. But um, being able to thoughtfully plan the team development, I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing. When you're growing at this pace, much of your job is hiring and you're interviewing con con constantly and you're meeting a ton of people. And so knowing the order in which you need to build the team and what's the resource that your team needs next. and I think as importantly as anything else, you know, as marketing, we're trusted with these massive budgets. 
and not getting too far ahead of yourself in spending that if there's a problem with the business that you risk the business. And so being being very responsible with the budgets you have. So you scale the team and you scale the budget just behind the growth rather than getting way out in front. Now you're working for this uh, husband and wife entrepreneur team, nine-year-old company, fast growth. As a CMO, those are they, they are co-CEOs. You're the CMO. What sorts of things do you talk to them about? What are your rituals with them? What are the issues that you most frequently engage in with them? In some ways, the pandemic has created a really different dynamic among this executive team than any I've been a part of before. And it's hard for me to say if it's because of the pandemic or if it's it's the nature of this team. But with our CEOs and with our executive team, we spend far more time on the personal side of what's going on in our lives and how things are going. And it's um, we spend a lot more time getting to know each other and just having that sm small talk, which I think we've all been so desperate for during the pandemic um, that it's um, it helps build an environment of real trust and connection with the team and with the CEOs um, rather than, you know, as, as soon as you flip the Zoom on, you get down to business and you go through the five bullet points and then everybody goes on their way. So a lot of the time that I've spent with the CEOs over the last year have been just talking about our lives. And I know that sounds like it might not be a, the most responsible use of time. We, we spend a lot of time together as an executive team, more than any other executive team that I've been around. And every aspect of the business is fair game and everything is, is in play. And I think there's an understanding that we've done a lot of things right to get to the place that we are, but the size and processes and strategy that we've employed to get to this point is not what we need to get us to the next point. So there's no aspect, aspect of the business that's above debate and discussion and trying to figure out how to make it better. So. The way we spend our time, it's really building the relationships within the team and then trying to knock down the areas of the business that are most in need of attention at that time. And I think that's, it, it, I'm certain it's true of every business, but it's really true of high growth businesses is that there's an infinite number of things that you could be working on. Um, there's an infinite number of like five alarm fires that are going off at any time where a system can't keep up with this or an employee's in the wrong seat or um, some kind of mistake happened. And being able to sort through those growing pains that every business feels to the three or four things that we really have to be good at at this stage of our development is um, a hard-earned skill, and it takes a lot of communication within the team. So it's trying to sort through where where's the short list of things that need to be prioritized uh, is where we're spending our time. So your CMO, your your high growth, your high growth brand, you're building your team. You're spending time on focusing on the issues that are mission critical at the time. 
Corey, how else do you spend your time? And you're, you're bringing in a team, you're hiring people. So if I had to look at your calendar, your diary for a month, what would I deduce from that? Well, if you looked at my calendar right now, one of the wonderful things about being a Austin-based CMO of a company that's mostly based in the UK is that I'm basically completely chalked with meetings from 6 a.m. to noon. And then the rest of my day is free for me to think and get, get some of the things done that have been on my list. And that's a luxury I've never had before because at six o'clock, you know, which is, so they're six hours ahead. So at noon, my time, they're packing up for the day and my day gets quiet. And that quiet time is really critical for me to be able to do that thinking where, um, in previous jobs, I've had to extend my days further into the morning and further into night in a way that uh, has pretty negative effects on the rest of your life. So my calendar has been very positive uh, beneficiary of the time zone situation. But uh, right now, if you look to my calendar, I frankly have too many one-on-one meetings with too many direct reports as I'm trying to build the next layer or, or hire the, the next level of leadership with the team. And it's great for me to have that depth of relationships, but it's, I have too many direct reports right now, and which has not been an uncommon thing as you go through some of these growth periods. And so you'd see a lot of one-on-one meetings right now. When you say you have too many direct reports, are we talking eight, 10, 12, 15? I think I have 15 right now. 15, yeah, that's a lot. And they're all highly capable people who are capable of functioning without me uh, looking over their shoulder every day. But I think if you get, when you get much past five or six, your ability to really work with people on the team at a level of depth that they need to develop in their career gets, uh, gets sacrificed. So, uh, I sort of acknowledge this is a short term, this is a short term situation, uh, and the action we're taking is to hire that le- level of leadership that we need. What are the most important capabilities right now, Corey, that you're building? I mean, this is a question that every marketer, it's a different answer you get based on the maturity of the company and the maturity of the team. But if you had to tell me that here are the three most important capabilities that are future facing for us, what would they be? I think number one for us has to do with having a real grasp of our own data. And um, so building out our own ability to keep robust records about our consumer database, being smarter about um, about people who have chosen to engage with the brand and the ways that they've chosen to engage and starting to do more work and customize our messaging towards the way people want to interact with us and at the stage of their life cycle with us as a brand. Um, we're very immature in that area. And so we've hired a bunch of resources to kind of get us up to current best practices especially with the changes that are happening to 
fa- fa- Facebook and Apple be having an understanding of um, how to connect with your consumers more effectively is really critical for marketers right now, where I think we went through a period of time over the last few years where Facebook's become a crutch for a lot of brands and, and Google, Google has become, become a crutch and their, their algorithms are so good that your internal marketing team can't beat them in terms of finding consumers. And so you start, you know, playing a slot machine at the casino, hitting a red button over and over again. And, and that's not to diminish the good work of the performance marketing team, but they've, they've taken a lot of the controls away from brands and away from marketers and have been so good and so efficient at reaching consumers that you just can't beat it. And so these tectonic shifts that are happening are forcing brands to become smart marketers again. We're also investing pretty heavily in our own software development capabilities and thinking about, uh, and this isn't, this isn't news to, I'm sure, any of your listeners, but trying to think of the holistic experiences, the brand is infinitely more than a particular product, walking people through the through. So we sell a product that, again, it's an oven that gets to a thousand degrees in 15 minutes. And the key that unlocks the ability to make a quality of pizza that most people can't make, but it still requires a lot of skill and, and patience to learn how to make dough and then learn how to stretch dough effectively and then build a pizza and then launch it. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And we want to make sure that from the first time our consumer buys the product, that they don't have such a frustrating experience with it, that they give up on it. And so trying to use in- interactive tools and really thoughtful software development to manage that consumer experience the entire way through. Um, and then on an ongoing basis is the next major priority for us. And then the third that I'd say, because you asked me for three, is being better at localized marketing in a few key geographies. So we're a UK-based company who a good chunk of our sales are to the US, a good chunk are to various markets in Europe. And um, there's a lot of pizza-loving communities around the world. but when we were, for instance, trying to sell to the, the German market, we were using a translation service that was um, kind of translating our some of our marketing copy and our web copy in ways that didn't make any sense and um, really were not putting the best brand foot forward. And we didn't really know who the in- influencers were in the pizza community in Germany. We didn't understand the media environment. So because this is an important market that loves pizza, investing in a team that is a fully functional marketing marketing team, um, obviously tethered back to headquarters, but can kind of do the full marketing mix within Germany in a way that's right for that market. And thinking of the same thing in other key markets like Italy and France 
and some of those other places. So having a multi-local approach to marketing in, in some of these key markets is probably the third major area that we're focusing on. Okay. One last question before I'm going into the creative brief, where we talk to you more about your life and your insights on brand and business and people. You interview a lot of people. I do. Right. You've been in two, <laughs> at least two high, very high growth companies, uh, more than that, actually. What's one or two of your power <laughs> questions that show up in every interview? I try to legitimately customize my interview for each person. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a couple questions that I've used a few times, but I don't have a set routine that I ask in every one. What I do is try to dig in to get real depth on what I think is the biggest strength of the candidate and the biggest reason why I wouldn't hire them. And I'll address the reason why I wouldn't hire them pretty dead dead on and give give them a chance to talk about it. Because you can see you can see what somebody's done when you look at the CV and there's always one or two things that stick out of like, okay, this is a little strange, or do they have any skills or ability in this area? And so I really like to zero in on the gap that I see between them and what I what I thought I was looking for and see how they address that. Um, so that's not really a question that I ask, but it's an approach that I consistently take. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, some of the questions that have come up were, I had a boss once that would ask what, what's the biggest misconception that people had about you that I thought, um, is, a, um, reveals a lot about the person. And I usually ask, you know, I mean, it, it depends on the role, but I, I usually ask, for within their field, something that they've seen somebody do that they really love. And I want to hear them wax poetic about something that the rest of the world would think is incredibly boring um, to kind of see that, that spark that they have for their field. Yeah, the craft. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're working on software, Corey, because I got a pizza stone for my birthday for my kids, and I've had some <laughs> hilarious attempted tr attempts at making dough. And, uh, you know, so I'm still working through it. So I need help. So I'm glad you're working on the software part of it. There's no question there's a learning curve. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. I'm going to move into the creative brief section, and I'm going to bring in my producer from Gallery Media, Matt Bogard, who's a real foodie. He, he loved the fact we were bringing you in to talk about pizza and uni. So I haven't done this before. I've been, I'm going to let Matt start, and then I'll come back in and close out the interview. So, Matt. Perfect. Well, thank you for that, Jim. And hello, Corey. This is, <laughs> what an intro. Yes. Hello, Matt. <laughs> uh, and just for the audience to know, full disclosure, I actually uh, reviewed an uni pizza oven for Pure Wow, which is a subsidiary of Gallery Media Group. And I'm a big fan of your product. Thank you. And something that I've noticed is I am a home, I'm a pizza maker at home. I'm not a professional pizza maker, but you guys have been popping up on a lot of accounts that I follow and it's kind of organic. One of them being the Za Report, which is a female pizza, who's a female pizza maker in Brooklyn who makes pizza for COVID first responders and people affected by the pandemic. Yep. Miriam. Yep. And uh, today, you guys actually launched a video series with Complex and First We Feast called Pizza Wars, which is hosted by another female pizza maker in New York City. 
And I really want to know how you, your team um, finds this white space in the world of pizza making to find these people who are doing good and to kind of, um, you know, make them part of the Uni family. What is what goes into that? I think being a brand that started with um, with a break from the traditional classic Italian uh backyard or brick oven pizza started us off on a path that said that um pizza making shouldn't just be uh owned by very few people that have a certain background and are white males it's really important that anybody can look at the roster of people that we support and see somebody who reflects themselves we didn't have to look very hard to find the two people that you referred to, which is Nicole Russell and Miriam Weissman from the Zaw Report. They're pretty incredible women who are doing great pizza, who any brand who's in this space would love to support. But beyond them, we have very actively sought out um, as wide a range of personalities and people for, to associate with um, to, to tell the uni story and the pizza story to every uh, person and nationality and gender and age that we can. Well, you guys do a really fantastic job doing that. Thank you for bringing me in. Matt, well done. Well done. Corey, uh, I'm going to shift back to a little bit more traditional questions. You've lived in Austin for the last eight years. What are you doing to help keep it weird? I don't think they need my help for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Austin's an incredible city and it's so driven by the live music scene and the, the pulse that it has on a daily basis. And so it was really weird this last year. And I think so many people moved here because of the um, activities they could do and the great bars and restaurants and the live music that you can do in small venues. And when that gets shut down, uh, it's it's you look at your city in a very diff, different way. So I think just starting to get back out again and participate in what makes Austin great is the best any of us can do right now. What's the marketing effort or campaign that you've been a part of, if you're most proud of? When I was at Yeti, we were on a growth trajectory that was pretty massive. And uh, there was a real concern inside the business that we were growing too fast and couldn't maintain our anchor of credibility with the core audiences. And so we started to invest in a film series called the Yeti Presents series, which were really... Um, the basic idea was we hired some of the best outdoor documentary filmmakers in the world to create these five to 10 minute uh, mini docs about personalities that were reflective of, of our brand values in the most rugged, extreme outdoor environments that you could imagine, the kinds of places where our products would be used. And 
um, and produce them at a quality level that was reflective of the quality of our products. That it's, it's a, a super premium quality. And so the branding, the full experience was there. And we were trying to find a way to uh, to both connect with our current audience and reach new consumers in a way that didn't feel like marketing and advertising and felt more like storytelling. And so we actually worked hard with most of the filmmakers to reduce the amount of product placement that was in them. And so there was no gratuitous logo shot and that consumers, anybody, viewers who were reading it could really fall into the fantasy of, and the mystery of that world and not break that illusion by realizing that they're in the middle of an ad. And, um, and as I look back at that body of work, you know, it, it helped, um, solidify the voice of Yeti. It, it anchored Yeti with, with the most passionate consumers that knew that the people that we picked were, were the, we, that we got it right. And the, just the quality of the films are so good that there's something that um, that I would always be proud of. Okay, last question. What's the best insight or recommendation that you've ever gotten from a Wildsome Field Guide? So there's a lot of great insights from Wild Sam Field Guides. And um, the the core idea of the of the brand is that it takes a different kind of look at a at travel advice. So instead of being a phone book of a hundred different places that you could go, it tells you the one place to go get to go get a burger. And um, the one place that the insiders would know, or somebody who lived in that area, who uh, who people outside of that area wouldn't would have no way of knowing it's like not the stuff that's at the surface level and uh there was a on um one of the fields guys is called the american south road trip and there was a route that they suggested that we take to get from one place to the next that was just this most incredible scenic drive that I've ever been on and it was at a, a time of the year where the seasons were changing and so it was it was a pretty stunning drive and um that's the kind of thing that you just wouldn't find in most of the mainstream guidebooks because it you know it's not anything that you can go buy or or um you know a business that you can go experience but it's a way for you to con con connect with that place at a deeper level Corey, that's a good way to end it. Thank you for your generosity today. Congratulations on this remarkable career and on this fabulous brand you're working on. And you've made me very hungry over the last hour. So I'm either going to have a very late lunch or a very early dinner. And I think it's going to be pizza. Good. And we, and we should talk about your uh, dough techniques. I think I can get you there. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you have confidence in that. <laughs> I have complete confidence. All right. Thanks, Corey. Take care. Thanks, Jim. That was my conversation with Corey Maynard. Three takeaways from this one to apply in your business and life. The first one, get out there and meet people. And I know we talk about that a lot. That's been challenging during COVID. But Corey talked about how he is open to conversations with other marketers. He seeks them out. He goes to conferences. He goes to trade shows. He has an informal network of people who he can bring in when he is trying to crack a particular problem because he spends time in staying connected. Second lesson, really, really understand the company and culture you are joining. 
Corey has done temporary CMO jobs for two brands, and he said it was extremely helpful to understand the company and the business before making a more permanent commitment. It's sort of like a mid-career internship. And one point he made is how important his team is and how he spends a high percentage of his time building his team, interviewing people, always ensuring his team is the right team with the right capabilities and performing at their maximum potential. Third lesson, be a method actor. Corey talks about how important it is for him to immerse himself in the brand, the consumers, and the business so he himself is a passionate advocate for the brand and he understands the brand deeply. He has been a method actor on every business he has been a CMO of. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.